This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of disprized love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear? to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose bourne no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus, the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment, with disregard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Act 3, Scene 1 from Hamlet, read by our guest this week. She's a graduate of the WA Academy of Performing Arts. Prior to graduating in 2015, she was cast in the Malthouse and Black Swan production of Picnic at Hanging Rock, which toured to the Lyceum in Edinburgh and the Barbican in London. For Bell Shakespeare, she most recently starred as Hamlet in Peter Evans' 2020 production, and also played Elise in The Miser in 2019. On screen, she's appeared in the award-winning FX series Mr. Inbetween, as well as Love Child and The Secret Daughter, and she's just been cast in a new ABC TV series promoting good mental health for middle graders, Dr. M versus the World. I'd love to welcome Harriet Gordon-Anderson. Harriet, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, James. So great to see you, Harriet. Now, (laughs) this is the iconic 
speech. The the most well-known speech in all of Shakespeare, the first line is possibly the best-known line ever written in the English <laughs> language. I mean, how on earth do you prepare to, to deliver a speech like this that's so well-known? Mm. <laughs> uh, it was daunting. We definitely didn't start off with this speech we we kind of in rehearsals in rehearsals rehearsals for hamlet um i think pete was very aware that there can be some you know you can trip up with getting overwhelmed by the notoriety of some of the language in this play in particular um i don't know i think i think the first two lines in particular i had to just put in the back of my head and ignore them and then get on with addressing the rest of the speech because there is so much in that text that is much less famous than the first two lines but is really, you know, the meat of, of everything that he's thinking about. And so I think I just had to familiarise myself with everything that I was feeling and thinking and everything that the speech was addressing before being able to really just let those first two lines kind of roll off the tongue and accept that there is, you know, there's going to be some nodding along in the audience. There's always every night um, people are mouthing it with me, which sure. can be distracting, but it's beautiful. It, you know, it's it's that sort of intricate challenge of trying to make something here, uh, land on ears for the first time um, mm. and make it my own, um, but also relishing the deep satisfaction that we have in enjoying something that we know we love. Um, so it was this speech in particular, I think might have been my favorite part of the play to sit and relax with the audience um, in great intimacy and let it really just get out of the way of the words, you know, not try to mince them too much, not try to attack them as, you know, my own take, but it's all there. It's you, you couldn't improve this linguistically so just get out of the way and let it fall out and um enjoy the connection that we're all feeling in the room really yeah and that, that's beautiful and I, and I really loved listening every night backstage to the way that you would deliver this speech with with such feeling but such simplicity as well and in many ways the speech and we, we should talk about where it appears in the play as well it, it sits outside the main action of the play because the last time we saw hamlet he was saying, oh, the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. He's, he's got a plan. He's going to do it. And then mm. he, he walks back in. The next time we see him, it's all about to be or not to be. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, how, how does that fit within the structure of the play? I mean, it's contentious as to whether this was written for this play in the first place, right? There are different theories, you know. Um, maybe it's just a really beautiful thing that I remember John Bell saying he thinks it was probably in Shakespeare's top drawer and he had to <laughs> squeeze it in somewhere That's because right. uh, it's that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think that's probably my favourite thing about it. Um, we've just seen a, a, a quite serious breakdown, uh, you know, and, and this resolution that Hamlet has had to build himself up again. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain? I'm going to build myself up. I'm, you know, I'm quite resolute. I'm going to take action. And then the next minute, what are the consequences of that action? Mm. Um, and if that, if that were not so quickly juxtaposed, then it wouldn't be such an interesting insight into the way the human brain and heart works, I think. Mm. Um, 
to be that it's not neat that it's not it, it's uh, not neat up. it's not linear you can be a hundred percent in one direction and a hundred percent in the other direction the next second um and uh, yeah that feels very true of humanity to me and the fact that it is um it doesn't make a lot of sense is quite perfect Absolutely, you know, and I think it's worth mentioning that in the first ever printed edition of this play, what's called the first quarter, it, it appears earlier, it appears in a different part of the play altogether, mm. uh, which perhaps is more, quote unquote, dramatically correct. Mm. Or, you know, if, if the dramaturgs got a hold of, of this play, they might say, well, you know, let's put it earlier um, to make it fit better. Uh, but as you say, what's wonderful about Shakespeare is the unpredictability of the characters and the and the way that they can turn on a dime and go in completely the opposite direction. And also the the ambiguity of the language. It's worth noting again that in that first quarto edition, the, the first line is to be or not to be, I, that's the point, or I, mm. there's the point rather. Uh, whereas here it's to be or not to be, that is the question. What's the difference between those two versions uh, for you? Oh, I mean, for me, this whole soliloquy is is questioning it's it's embracing uncertainty it's sitting in the discomfort of not knowing mm. um i haven't reached you know hamlet hasn't reached a point um i believe uh, you know he's finding these sort of gems along the way ah oh, there's the rub you know he's discovering with us right. rather than reporting back what he has found and right. that to me is so much more engaging we are there with him in ev you know along every step of the way and there are so many question marks <laughs> there you know there are so many questions that go unanswered um that uh, you know if there were answers to these they'd be so much less engaging don't you think Oh, look, absolutely. And, you know, that brings me to that, that opening line again and just those first uh, six words, to be or not to be, as I said, perhaps the most famous in all of the English language. And I think that that line hinges on that word or because mm. to be or not to be seems like quite a simple choice. It's either this or that. But I think it's it's worth noting that in, in, in maths, in mathematics, the word or... Uh, usually means one thing or the other or both. And mm. so perhaps to be or not to be is not just either this or that, but rather either this or that or both. And so to be and not to be, both can coexist. And, and this is the wonderful beauty of the paradox of Shakespeare. So like, um, I must be cruel to be kind or so fair mm. and foul a day I have not seen. Um, and just adds that layer of complexity if Hamlet can both be and not be at the same time. I agree. I agree. I think the um, the characterization of Hamlet as uh, the hesitant, impotent thinker um, is just so unsupported in the text mm. because I think, you know, he, there are so many examples, like you just said, that he is holding two fully formed, very valid ideas in his mind, both of which he could travel. Um, and, and the stakes of that is so high. I think by smashing Rogan Peasant Slave and To Be or Not To Be Together, mm. um, as you were referencing earlier, is such a great kind of like it boils down to a young person who has this filial duty from an inherited you know kind of Norse tradition to mm. avenge his father's murder there's a law of the land that he has to uphold and it's very clear but he's a Christian and you know thou shalt not kill 
and you know forgiveness is divine and god shall revenge you know right. in in mm. his in the christian ideology and so mm. that's this exquisite thing about this production is getting this norse mythology of pagan law and and you know sort of writing writing the order of the universe by human action and then just smashing this christian ideology into the middle of it of mm. but what are the consequences what yeah. what, what if I truly fear damnation, what am I getting myself into? My father's just popped up as a ghost and told me about, mm. you know, fires and hell and the torment that he lives in. Mm. How can I not be afraid of that? That is that that is so true to Hamlet in this moment that I think to colour him as as a as a hesitant kind of non-active person is is very unfair. I think he. Mm. He, I mean, for goodness sake, it's the final line of the soliloquy, the, you know, and lose the name of action. That's what I want. That's what I'm trying to achieve yes. throughout the play. But there are obstacles and everything that keeps coming up stops it from happening. So is Hamlet mad? Is that, is that a true obstacle for Hamlet or is it all just play acting? I mean, I think he's in deep grief and... Um, I think the suppression of that grief is maddening. I think that um, being told tis unmanly, um, that the society around him does not accept any display of grieving, despite the fact that it's, you know, his father has died and <clears throat> there's, you know, a great reason to mourn. Uh, I think that is infuriating for him and very confusing for him as a young person to have nowhere to put his heart and no one to express himself to. But I, I I don't know that he really, I mean, of course he's, you know, he says put an antic disposition on and I believe him. I, I You know, I think that that's a lovely hangover from the sort of Norse mythology of, of Ambleth, of, of, of putting on a, um, a disguise of madness to create a, a cloak of safety so that um, he's not going to get killed by the king, yeah, so that he can buy his time to make sure that he really is going to, you know, that it is the right and noble thing to commit to this murder. But in order to buy the time, he, you know, stops paying attention to local customs and customs yeah. of politeness mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, instead speaks his mind, which in probably most sort of gentry societies is is seen as madness i mean look at if look at ophelia you know i don't think she tells any lies when she when she starts grieving and and speaking her mind and of course it's it's labeled hysteria and you know that's one of the important things about our production that we did this year and will do again in 2021 it will be back harriet <laughs> will be back as hamlet yes is of course oh. the casting of you harriet as a young woman in this role now what does that do in your opinion to the role it's not we, we didn't change any of the uh, pronouns we didn't pretend that harriet um, that that Hamlet, Hamlet and Harriet, that's the same thing to me now, <laughs> that uh, Hamlet um, was a female character. You just played the character as a young man, but it is a female body on stage embodying this role. What does that do to mm. the role, do you think? Yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about this before heading into rehearsals um, and a lot of time, you know, and we'll continue to discover what that all means as we perform it again and again and receive different, um, you know, reactions from different audiences across across the country. 
What I have discovered so far in, in sort of unpacking this question is uh, I, I had to approach it as just playing Hamlet, obviously. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no uh, point to trying to um, hold, you know, playing a woman, playing a man, play, you know, the, the, there's no mm-hmm. point to any of that. I'm playing Hamlet and there are so many aspects of this play that uh, uh, gender is completely irrelevant to what I think is inherent, you know, in the point of this play, the, the take-home feelings that it leaves me with and that I think, you know, why it resonates with so many people is it's just what is it to be a good person? You know, what is it to live and live well and leave a good memory behind, mm. you know? Mm. And what is this story that Horatio is going to report back of the life of Hamlet and how did he do, you know? Did he do well? Was he noble? Was he a coward? And that to me is is not a question of, of men and women or, you know, anything sort of in between. It's 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 just a question of, of being a person. And, and so that was very easily, access, I mean, you know, not easy to achieve, but, but I could find ways into that very easily. Um, and in terms of, of the gender, there are moments as well in the play that I think gender is really sings and we really hear in hopefully a new way uh, when spoken by a woman. Mm. There were moments where a, a, a real lull would fall, a real quiet would fall upon the audience um, in moments of deep misogyny yes, um, yes, that come out of Hamlet's mouth, you mm. know. And, and I do believe that you cannot understand the impact of the words whore um, and scullion and these hateful words uh, until they have been inflicted upon you. And so I, I find it deeply interesting to take the words of a perpetrator and give them to someone who is not a beneficiary of the patriarchy and say, use these words violently. And so I, 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 it's an amazing opportunity and it's incredibly empowering and freeing and wounding and healing at the same time to, to walk around the stage and re- literally spit these insults in the faces of the women around me mm. and... and it was, I think, very confronting for a lot of people to see and, and it was very confronting to move through as a company but also felt very important because I, I, I can only imagine if I was a male actor, I would find that very difficult to access the, the, the ugliness of those yes. moments, to really lean into the hateful misogyny that I, I don't hold that against Hamlet. I don't, I don't think that's a personal thing that he invented. He's the product of a time. Um, but it's a patriarchal time and, um, it's, you know, a huge part of the play. And I think to shy away from that is to do a disservice to the darker elements of this play that make the humanity and the lightness and the hope and the beauty really sing. And, you know, mentioning the lightness of this play, of course, people sometimes forget that in many parts it's very funny. Uh, <laughs> in the relationship between Hamlet and Ros and Gill, it can be very funny. Uh, when Hamlet's talking to Polonius, of course, it can be very funny. How did you approach those moments of, of humour and lightness? Uh, they were my beacons. They are so... I. I agree. I think Hamlet is a very funny man. I think before his father's death, he was just the life of the party. He's so witty. He's so charming. <laughs> he's so sprightly. I just ad- 
adore him. Um, and we, I think it's so important. I remember very early on um, highlighting these moments so that we can catch glimpses of this noble mind that, you know, was mm. overthrown, that, mm. that Ophelia speaks so beautifully about. It's so important that we see these glimpses of this happy prince um, so that his, his downfall is all the more tragic. Mm. Um, and and I, I, I really... I really, I find him very funny. And so it was very easy to lean into the humour of these things. And it was very easy when, you know, working with Rob and like, yeah. I just did a lot of learning. I did a lot of watching and I did a lot of kind of watching in the room to the way that Ros and Gil were playing off each other. And there's so much comedy in this cast um, that it's just, it makes it so easy. I mean, Rob Menzies is just a master. It makes it so easy. And, and with your relationship with your father, the ghost, what are some of the places you went to there to discover that very, very deeply intimate relationship with that father figure? Mm. It's interesting. There was sort of an unlocking moment with that particular speech. I think it was around, I remember it was the end of week three. It was the Saturday rehearsal of week three. And I think I just... I'd been doing fine. I'd been doing great. I was like, this is a piece of piss. I don't know what everyone talks about. No, that's easy. <laughs> and then I remember earlier Pete had said, you know, you just make sure that you tell me you're okay. You know, if you're not okay, just let me know. You know, mm. you can always flag if you need time, you know, yada, yada. He was very, you know, generous um, in that respect. And I was like, I don't know. I'm fine, Pete. I'm, I'm great. See you later. <laughs> See you tomorrow. And I'm, I'm, you know, something I wasn't able to something. It wasn't sitting with me and it all became overwhelming by that point. He had said, okay, well, you know, I, I remember, you know, like it, it's usually around week three, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's usually yeah. around week three that someone, I was like, no, not me. I'm going to be fine. I'm, I'm staunch. And, um, and it was the Saturday rehearsal of week three that I just, I came in and, and Rob came up and said, morning, how are you? And I just burst into tears. Mm. And I, um, I, I wasn't feeling sad, but I think I was just feeling very overwhelmed um, in a way that I hadn't noticed or acknowledged yet. And so it all just had to come out that day. Mm. And I spent a lot of the morning crying, as of course you remember, James. Um, mm. And it wasn't, it didn't stop. I wanted didn't want it to get in the way of rehearsals. In fact, it was ended up being such a useful day because being in a, like acknowledging vulnerability, which I didn't feel like I had let myself do because I had such a task and I think I had put my armour on to come to work and play Hamlet. And it was this necessary folding of allowing myself to feel vulnerable and not know whether I am up to the task and not know whether we'll get there. And, you know, maybe I'll be terrible and allow those thoughts in, which you really just don't have time for a lot of the time in order to get it done. Um, really kind of, I remember just sitting with Tony and that's the scene that we were rehearsing is, is Hamlet and his father. And the sadness of that little boy, I think Hamlet becomes so young in that scene. And, and at least that's what we found and that was our production's Hamlet is he, he just regresses to, I mean, could you imagine, imagine losing a parent and having them appear before you again. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking and it's full of hope and it's full of innocence. And I just, I think I needed to allow myself to be in a vulnerable place to discover that 
aspect of Hamlet, of his childhood and his inner child and the kind of tenderness, like tenderness of, of wanting so much to do right by dad and wanting so much to do the best thing in his eyes that this kind of manipulation is able to take hold of Hamlet Sr. telling Hamlet Jr. this is what I need you to do. And uh, it's one of my kind of, yeah, really treasured moments of our production, I think. With the beautiful Tony Kogan. With the beautiful Tony Kogan, yeah. It was stunning. It was spellbinding, really, to just sit there as a child and, and, and admire a parent, you know, for a moment. It was beautiful. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and my guest today, Harriet Gordon-Anderson. Now, Harriet, you have showbiz in the blood. (laughs) <laughs> was, was Shakespeare always a part of your life from childhood? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, yes, I, I think I was a very serious young person. Right. Um, like perhaps a lot of, maybe a lot of performers, um, I, I really valued performing. I didn't think I was going to be an actor. I thought I was going to be a dancer ah. um, and didn't possess the talent or the skill. But um, my uncle was an actor and I, and I was certainly around, around actors a lot and thought they were just the funniest people in the world. Oh, they used to get up on, t- on tabletops to tell stories at parties. I mean, of course, they were all completely drunk most of the time. Yeah, like Yorick, um, that's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I remember being at these parties as a five-year-old and thinking, well, this is clearly the most successful profession in the world because they're all very happy. Um, <laughs> and so I think I always had in my mind that being a performer was going to bring great joy and um, great communion and friendship. And um, I'm so glad that that's been proved right. But um, I do remember my first, I think the first memory of really connecting with Shakespeare came a little later. Um, I would have been about 14 when my parents gave me the complete works. And um, I would, yeah, I was just a little drama nerd, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of us probably were. And I remember mm. reading, I think Othello really stuck with me early on. I, I just wanted so much to know what it's like to know a love that is that engrossing you know Mm. what must it be like to feel a love that requires such language um that got me very sort of intoxicated um Mm. from the get-go and then later when i went to drama school um uh another really wonderful kind of eye-opening moment for me was um playing lucio in measure for measure Measure, yeah. yeah yeah um i was quite often put in the male roles or the older roles because I don't think I've ever really been much of a Juliet. I don't know why. Mm. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, um, that was an eye-opening moment for me too because I think I had previously um, soaked up the teachings that if you want an empowering uh, role in Shakespeare as a woman, you'd better get good at uh, grieving your children uh, right, or yep. grieving mm-hmm. your husband who's gone off to war. Yes, yes. Or, you know, mm-hmm. and oh, uh, it was just so, <laughs> it just opened up a whole new world to me to be this lascivious, fun, sexy, you know, mm. powerful guy who was, you know, like taking the stage by storm and like owning his space and... It was, and I, I, I played Lucia, I played her as a woman, but as, you know, a woman with those um, characteristics and it was a real eye-opener for me. And then 
after drama school, I mean, that was your kind of laser-like focus. You wanted to b- perform in Shakespeare. You spent three years in Perth, came over to Sydney, auditioned for Bell Shakespeare, and the first show you did with Bell was The Miser, was a Moliere. What was, was that experience like? Oh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. I, um, yeah, I was so surprised to get an, and, you know, so grateful to get an audition because I did a general and I think I came in with Joan of Arc and I was, you know, I was like, this is where my comfort lies, you know, I'm going to do something dramatic and... Um, and then I got a, yeah, I got an audition for The Miser and I completely freaked out because I thought, oh, God, I can't do a farce. I'm not funny. I'm not feminine. <laughs> I'm not, you know, flouncy and all the things that Elise is. But, of course, you know, she's so much more than that. And and that was a really wonderful, humbling uh, experience for me to, um, I don't know, to, like, find, like, greater colours in in characters that may have been written a really long time ago and, you know, have tropes about them. But, oh, boy, the, like, the things that you can find when you play with those tropes and learning from Michelle Doak and Sean O'Shea and, you know, obviously John Bell, um, just the incredible power of well-artfully skilled comedy is... It's quite a magic uh, to behold. So, so I really, I really soaked up a lot of learning. Um, and the beautiful Jess Tovey was just the most gorgeous person to be in love with. And yeah, I just, I had a ball. It was so much fun, kind of putting on this big frilly skirt and you know playing this woman. And you know, again, a woman of her time who is you know trapped in a certain paradigm and who has frustrations about that but can only behave, you know, within a certain kind of box that she's given. And oh, it, it was really interesting. What's it like to rehearse with John? Oh, he's a tyrant. <laughs> oh, he's awful. <laughs> no, of course, he's just so generous. I kept, I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I didn't expect anything different than him being just an absolute sweetheart. But he has every right to, uh, I don't know, school us all or tell us where to sit and stand and how to say it. You know, I would have been perfectly obliging if, um, you know, if he had sort of thrown his weight around the room, to be honest. But he just, he's incredibly generous of nature. And um, I think I did have a, you know, I was a little outspoken in some of the discussions around the text and around, um, you know, I don't know, like, yeah, gender discussions and sexuality discussions and unpacking that. And he just got right out of the way and was just so intrigued to listen. And um, I thought that was very generous of him and perhaps a little forward of me. Um, But he, oh, he just is a delight to work with and, and and a really beautiful human and and I I learned a lot from him professionally and personally. And then of course the mountain that is Hamlet. Now you Harriet got so fit uh, in preparation <laughs> for playing this role. You, you were fit I think mentally as well as physically. You were ready. Uh, let me tell you that the, the feeling I got after the show each night was that you could have just bounced back out there and, and given us another one. Like, it, like you, you seem to just take it in your stride. Now, I know a lot goes into to that, that feeling of ease. Of course it does. But what happens when you've prepared for a marathon, you've prepared to climb a mountain and it is cut short? We only did a week or so of performances. I, I remember we went in on a Sunday afternoon. We did a show and we were meant to go back in on the Tuesday and we got the call that day saying the, the show's off, come in and collect your stuff. 
What is that interrupted feeling like? Where do you put that energy then? Mm. I I mean it's a, I mean I'm still figuring it out really. I'm still figuring out what it all was. I think it was just happening so quickly you couldn't really stop and and understand it yet. Um I I oh where do I start? Well, I mean I'll go back to the start of your of your question. The fitness was important to me because um, there's no greater motivator than having people think that you can't do it. Not specific. I've, I haven't I've had a very lucky and privileged upbringing. I haven't had a lot of people telling me you can't do this or you can't do that. But um, there's there's nothing like a little bit of uh, questioning as to whether you can, you know, handle a sword fight um, to make You're you right. just really rip into it. <laughs> so <laughs> it was important to me and to Nigel, um, our incredible fight director, um, and to Jack, our Laertes, to, that this was going to be the most robust um, and, you know, bloodthirsty and, you know, like grit your teeth, quote-unquote, manly sword fight that, that this company, you know, could muster. And and we really committed to that and we trained for a very long time. And um, I, I felt that was important because I, I there's, it's, there's just no point in people coming away and saying, that was pretty good for a girl. There's just no point, um, you know, in having and allowing that double standard to, to have any seat at the table. So... Um, so it was it was incredibly gratifying, and I am I'm very proud of of all of the effort that we put in and what we were able to achieve. It was, I think, quite a you know quite a exquisite um, fight sequence by the end of it. Um, and yeah, so I was physically fit. I was, I, I to be honest, James, I, I'm I, the joy and the joy and the privilege of of having this opportunity is so buying that. I, I, I'm sure that I would have discovered further along the run um, some of the other pitfalls of, of, of touring this show for a long time, of, mm. of repeating, mm. you know, being in this mindset for a long time. But in my experience, the absolute, I mean, it's, I mean, it's just joy. There's no other word for it. it, it I've, I will probably never have another role that makes my heart sing in such a way you know, and has yeah, deepened yeah. me as a person in such a way. I, I, I never knew I could love Hamlet as much as I do. Um, and so that is so energizing. And so I do, I, I mean, I, I, I hope that I can get off stage and do it all again, because why not? Because what's more fun than that? It's, it, <laughs> and, and tragedy is so cathartic and it is a privileged position to be able to have your catharsis as a role. I know Ophelia doesn't have that, you know, she has to kind of, take her trauma off stage and sit with it and calm it down herself yeah. you know so yeah. it, it is yeah. a wonderful role to play in that regard and the interruption it all happened so quickly and it was also hard to know what it was and you know there's so many people that experienced this as well um i don't think we could really let ourselves grieve i i couldn't let myself grieve for a while because i didn't know you know, we didn't know if it was a brief interruption or if it was a yes. postponing or if yeah. it was a cancelling or would we ever bring it back. I know that, you know, we all went out to the pub at the first opportunity that we sort of knew that it was confirmed we wouldn't be we wouldn't be going ahead and, mm -hmm. and, and we mm -hmm. met up and commiserated and, and I'm I'm so grateful that, you know, Pete stood up there and said, I'm heartbroken and we're all heartbroken. 
and yeah. what an incredible thing it is to be heartbroken because we loved it so much. And I think that's really important. Um, that, that has been very buoying over this sort of funny period for me um, that I'm very proud of everyone and of what we made. Um, I, I, I had never worked harder um, and I had never made something that I have been as proud of. And to be able to say that, perhaps I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't had such a relief and had that removed, you know, and, right. and, and now mm. I'm so aware of how special and precious that is. Um, but yeah, I, I did, I did eventually have to kind of grieve, you know, go through a bit of a grieving process and allow myself to be disappointed, you know, cause I think it's yes. quite an Australian thing to be like, Oh, you know, chin up. Um, you know, right. I, I don't deserve to be disappointed. There's people in much worse situations. At least I, you know, sure. I'm not putting kids mm. through school and, you know, don't have a huge amount of, financial responsibilities as a young person that you know this is like I, my heart was really breaking for a lot of people in this industry um for whom this time has been incredibly troubling um and so i think i think going through yeah going through a process of allowing myself to feel disappointed and then pick myself back up again and start to open my eyes to the possibilities of what you know what art looks like in this world you know yes it has yeah. been an, a, a pretty unique experience well, we are thrilled that Peter Evans has now officially announced that we will be doing Hamlet again in 2021. We're back, baby. So we will be back and you'll get the uh, the full experience of it then and uh, it'll be great to see how you go as you tour to Canberra and Melbourne as well. With Exciting you, times. with you along the way, James. <laughs> I'll be sitting there, yeah. but I'm the observer. You know, Horatio just kind of floats around the outside <laughs> watching and going, oh, Poor old Hamlet. Um, oh, no, you hold, <laughs> wish it made some different choices. You hold me back from a couple of punches, you know. Where would I be <laughs> without right. you? I'd have a broken jaw. That's right, that's right. You would have <laughs> get smacked in the face by good old Laertes. Yeah. Harriet, thank you so much. It's been awesome speaking to you today. Now, just before we go, we have one more segment mm -hmm. called The Final Five. It's five quick questions and I'm going to need five quick answers from you. Here we go, oh, number goodness. one. Okay. As an actor. Yes. Do you prefer to be the lover or the villain? Oh, the villain, definitely. I prefer to explore the darker parts of humanity, please. Sounds good. Now, what do you think is the most underrated Shakespeare play? Uh, I would have to say, I, I, I don't know, but I, for today I'll say Coriolanus <laughs> uh, because I really want to see it. I want to see it in English. I saw it um, in Berlin, all in German, played by actually an entire an entirely female cast and it was the most mm. rough and ready thing I've seen. Oh, it was amazing. So I would love to see that again. I hope that people put it on more. Who's your favourite actor, Harriet, that you haven't worked with that you'd love to work with? Oh, I have a really deep love and admiration for, you know, dear friend of the company, Kate Mulvaney. She's been so wonderful to me in this process mm. and um, a real light and a real hero. And I look up to her very much and would love to work with her. What's your dream Shakespeare role that you haven't played yet? Uh, I, I've always put Queen Margaret on a fun pedestal she's not oh, yeah. i know she's not mm -hmm. a you know like she's not a major one but the uh i think that in that same vein of um you know a tyrannical woman or a woman scorned there's a there's like a fierceness and a love that she um possesses that i think is super fun and harriet if you weren't an actor what do you think you'd be doing 
Um, that is oh, so many things. I wanted to be a scientist. Um, oh, right. Yeah, I really, mm. I really leaned into biology as a kid, and mm-hmm. um, I would love to pursue something with a bit of a scientific nature. But I also love people, so maybe something. I actually had an amazing speech pathologist on Hamlet, who was incredibly inspiring and very good at her job. So that's quite inspiring to me. Maybe working with speech sciences and and performers. Harriet, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining me on Speak the Speech. Thanks, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.